0: How is assessment related to increasing learner engagement? Does this motivate students? Why haven't we yet substantially changed the way we deliver education, even though technology makes this possible? These are some of the issues we will address in this episode of Learner Engagement Activated a podcast that helps you take teaching and learning to the next level with the latest in research and applications on learner engagement for students at all ages, levels, and environments. This podcast hosts leaders in the field to bring you advice for how to increase learner engagement to improve student outcomes. I'm your host, Ann Fency, and in this episode, I speak with Dr. Eric Mazur, a physics professor at Harvard, to hear some of his thoughts on learner engagement in higher education. Ready, set, activate! Eric Mazur is the Balkansky Professor of Physics and Applied Physics and Academic Dean for Applied Sciences and Engineering at the John A. Paulson School of Engineering Applied Sciences at Harvard University. His physics specialty is nanophotonics, which I know absolutely nothing about, but he is also an expert in educational innovation, particularly in the area of learner engagement. I've been a big fan since I learned of his peer instruction method, which is a way to make a large lecture class interactive. And I also highly recommend Perusal, a peer annotation platform that he helped to develop, which I use in my own classes. I'll add links to those in the episode description along with some uh, links to some of his very engaging and informative talks on YouTube. So Eric Mazur, thank you for joining us on our podcast.
1: My pleasure, thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so let's begin with the why of learner engagement. What is the importance of interactivity and social interactions in the learning process?
1: Well, that's a good question. I I really think that um, deep down learning is a social experience. Uh, it doesn't start when we go to our first school, it starts you know more or less the moment we're born and uh, and and it starts in an interaction with, with other people. That's how we learn. Um, we learn by doing and unfortunately I think the approach to education that is used around the globe from or maybe not in kindergarten. Maybe that that's a place where they still you know educate the right way, but but as it gets more formalized through our education, elementary school, middle school, high school, and then college, I think the 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 interactivity, the fun gets taken out of learning, and the purpose gets taken out of learning, and therefore we get disengaged learners who will learn to pass the test rather. Than learning to improve themselves, which is what we really want in in education.
0: Yeah. So why, why do you think that hasn't changed? I mean, we're in 2021, you know, we've had technology, we've had all kinds of ways of, you know, making these changes based on what we we know about how learning happens. We know that it's a social activity. Why hasn't this changed?
1: I know 600 years ago, Gutenberg invented the printing press, and here many, we, we still have many teachers who are essentially reading the book to their students. I, I think it's two reasons. I think one is that we tend to all project our own experiences onto, the world around us, right? I mean, we learned it in a certain way, and therefore, you know, even if we're told otherwise, we tend to assume, you know, that's how my students will learn too. And so, so we perpetuate um, the, the, the status quo. And, and I think the reason that we can do that is because of a very distorted accountability that we have in education, right? That we, in a sense, we teach, but at the same time, we evaluate the result of that teaching, because we are the ones designing the assessment of our teaching, so we can always adjust the assessment to match whatever we do in the classroom. So I think those two, those two problems, you know, are, 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 are responsible for perpetuating what has been going on essentially since uh, you know, <laughs> the University of Bologna was founded a thousand years ago.
0: So let's talk about uh, assessment. So uh, in order to really measure the impact of learner engagement on student outcomes, it's important to be able to assess the changes in knowledge and behavior in our learners that we hope to see as a result of what we design in our instructional activities. So what are some successful strategies that you have used to authentically assess student understanding, both during the learning process and mastery of course, outcomes at the conclusion of a lesson or a unit?
1: Yes. So so until I guess something like 10 years ago, I still had mostly, uh, even though I changed my approach to teaching dramatically by, by, by using peer instruction and so on, I, I was still assessing my students in a very standard way, namely through exams. Why? Because, I mean, that's the way I had been assessed and I knew of no, no other way to, to assess them. But, but somewhere around 10 years ago, I started to realize that assessment is, in a sense, the, the tail that wags the dog. I mean, it, it's the assessment that dictates how, how students study. Right, because they have to study in order to pass the test, because the test is going to tell them whether or not they've satisfied the, the criteria for that uh, for that course. So suddenly it hit me that, you know, I made all these changes to my approach to teaching, but what really matters to the students is the assessment. If I don't change the assessment... They're not going to change their study habits because no matter what, they're going to they're going to adjust their study habits to 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 match the demands of the test. And most tests are essentially, you know, closed book, not talking to each other. You know, it's an artificial situation in which we never find ourselves in the professional world, and and therefore it leads students to cram and cramming leads to short term memory uh, storage and, and last year actually I heard a student refer to his exams in other courses as cram and flush. I'd never heard that term before. But but in a sense that it absolutely in, in a sense as that's that's what happens, right? You cram, you can remember it for three days and then just enough to pass the exam and and, and, and then it's gone. So I thought, I, I really need to make radical changes. And and I also realized that, yes, peer instruction was a great way of engaging students in the classroom. But in essence, it was more or less putting a mandate over a broken system, right? I mean, the whole idea of putting students in a, in a lecture hall was the teacher being the focus of attention, as if it's the teacher who is the most important person in the classroom, whereas in reality, it's the students. And um, so I'd realized, you know, that for many, many years I'd been teaching physics to engineering students and pre-meds. And I would always start my my course by saying, you know, we're going to do physics and uh, you're going to learn a lot of really important skills uh, that are going to be important, you know, in, in becoming an engineer or or a doctor. And I happen to believe that as a physicist, that the type of skills you you learn in a physics course are relevant to much more than just um, doing physics. But, you know, as I start to think about the assessment, I also start to think about that phrase and that statement and, and realize that it very much sounds like, you know, you're... Your mother telling you here eat the spinach because it's good for you even though you don't like spinach or your dentist was telling you you need to floss every time you 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 eat right I mean it's one of these things that you oh yeah you know (laughs) but 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 you don't really latch on to it so so I decided to completely change both the approach to teaching and the assessment as follows rather than presenting the book to my students, and say, here, learn this, it's good for you. I put the book aside and I tell my students, we're going to work on some really exciting projects. And I try to add a component of empathy or social good to the project. And in, in, initially, the, the connection between the project and the physics might not even be completely obvious. And once they're completely enthusiastic, I sort of explain what the project is about, how it's connected to social good, or how it's connected to empathy. And once they're really enthusiastic about it, I take my book and I say, "Here, you may want to have a look at this book. It may help you with your project. So, so the big shift is really to think of the content not as, a, as, a, as an abstract goal in its own right, but as a vehicle to accomplish a goal that's much more meaningful in the minds of the students, namely that, that, that project. And it really has a has a big change, right? Because now the physics becomes more fun because the project it inherits the fun aspect of the of the project, and and they're looking at the physics not because somebody tells them you must learn this in order to become an engineer. No, they learn it because it helps them with their project. And exactly, so so it cha- it has a dramatic change on engagement and and also it makes the assessment a lot more easy because essentially you assess the project and and, uh, in a sense you almost know that when they've carried out a successful project they've learned a lot because the learning follows the effort and the engagement. So that is something that I, 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 will, I will not easily go back to. Now you asked another question, you asked about how do you assess the, um, you know, units that, that you go through in the course. And last year when the pandemic hit and I realized I had to be much more tolerant for, um, for you know, problems that my students may encounter with poor connectivity or illness and, and all kinds of other problems inflicted by the uh, by the pandemic i um i i was reading about different forms of assessment and stumbled on specifications grading which has been a game changer and essentially what it does is that it breaks the course into units and i went to the extreme okay 68 units every little bit that they did was like a, a little micro unit and for each of these units you either meet specifications or you don't meet specifications. The specifications are clearly articulated and if you don't meet specifications you can just do it again. You have to do it within a week but you can do it again and if you don't meet it again you can do it again. So you can always try a second time to meet the specification or a third or a fourth time if you don't meet it or you can give up <laughs> and at the end of the term at the end of the term the grade you receive is determined by the number of units for which you've met specifications. So that means that the grade actually reflects how much of the total material that that they've dealt with they have mastered in a sense. And you know what I found? I found it had a transformative impact on, on the students. First of all, rather than... Having to wait until you know there was a midterm exam, and then you know being pulled down irrevocably by poor performance, um, you know they, they have these little micro—it's like a micro badging if you want, right—a badge, you had a badge, another badge. They they went to great lengths to make sure that they earned every single badge. I've never seen students work that hard. And in fact, yeah, and in fact, it was reflected in much larger learning gains than 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 any previous year.
0: Wow. So that, uh, that sounds like a lot of work. Um, and what about like your work? Has it changed? Not just the front loading of that, but like ongoing, does that change your workload in terms of what you have to do for assessment?
1: Actually, you know, I think the overall assessment is not that different from what i did before but i've split it into much smaller things that i can do much faster than before yeah. um i have the benefit of also you know an, uh, given that we are a predominantly graduate institution so a large number of graduates who help with the assessment um but i don't think i i don't think it's that much more work. It's distributed rather than coming in huge piles right? yeah, yeah, yeah. a few times a year. It's it's very distributed. Some of it, some of the units are purely based on demonstrable effort and it's generally much easier to evaluate effort than correctness. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and some of it is even you know just demonstrating reading on perusal, which you mentioned earlier, and 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 that part of the assessment is automated, and uh, and the students are quite fine with it. I've never had a complaint oh, nice. about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, if we have the tools to automate things, why not? <laughs> why not automate yeah, them then, when we can? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And then finally, let me not forget, part of it is also peer evaluation. So the course, in addition to being project-based, team-based, and at the end of each project, the the teams are teams of four students, the students evaluate each other, themselves, and the team as a whole. And essentially, they evaluate their team members on a number of metrics, like engagement, like professionalism, like how well-prepared they were before they came to any team meetings. And essentially, we get a pretty good picture Right, if you have three individuals evaluate every individual and we can cross correlate that within a team, and there's great software to do that. That's you know, the peer evaluation there works really well, and it turns out students are way more responsive to peer evaluation than the evaluation of an instructor.
0: (laughs) Yes, I bet. Um, So, we kind of touched a little bit on motivation, and so engagement with course content or peers or an instructor often comes from motivation. So it sounds like some of these things are motivating in themselves, but what else can you do to foster intrinsic motivation to learn?
1: Yeah. So in a sense, we touched on this subject, or I touched on the subject when I talked about a project, right? I think that project-based learning has really been a huge improvement in the intrinsic motivation to learn. The next one is the assessment, because I think most assessment robs students of the ownership of their learning, right? Because now they're responsible not to themselves for learning, Mm -hmm. but they're responsible to some external entity, the professor, ETS, whatever, uh, you know, for learning. And I think eventually, you know, when we graduate from whatever we graduate, you know, learning doesn't stop there. Living is learning. And mm-hmm. and you, you continue to learn. And then you have no external assessment. You you have to be the old judge of your learning. So I think one very important thing is to actually build in any you know educational uh activity a component of self-evaluation mm-hmm. so so for example let's take the homework in my class it used to be that students would get a homework that collaborate on the homework they hand it in sometimes copying it from each other then you know graduate teaching assistants would just uh, grade it and then a week later they get it back so many out of so many points you know yeah. they would only look at the <clears throat> they would only look at the, the number and, and not at the feedback, feedback and not really learn anything. Learn anything. So, so now, now what I, I do is that, that I give them homework every week, but much shorter. It actually only has two problems. And I require them to um, to do the problem alone. They, they have to write it in, 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 in black, black or, or in blue. blue or they type it in black or blue, either one. And um, what matters is not that they get it right. What matters is that they document their effort, break down the problems into four parts, getting started, devise a plan, execute the plan, and evaluate the answer. And that they they show that they've thought. Even if it's all wrong, as long as they do that, show an honest effort of doing that, it's good. So they need to upload that and then bring it to class if it's in person, where they're only allowed to use a red pen to mark up their own work. So they sit at a table with their team, and, and they, they go, hey Sarah, Sarah what, what, what did, did you, you do for, for problem, problem one? one. Well, well, Sarah, Sarah goes, let me present problem. what I did, and, 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 and shows it, and oh, but I have... I have this equation here, why, why did you use that? And uh, essentially, yeah. they have to teach each other and mark up their own work, not correct their own work, mark it up. <laughs> here, I made this mistake, I should have done this. Sarah actually did that. And, and, and then after they've marked up their work, they need to fill out a reflection. They need to evaluate their own knowledge of physics, what they need to improve, what the strategy is to improve. And even if they get the individual part completely wrong, as long as they have a correct assessment of themselves, they get full marks on the, mm-hmm. on the, um, on the homework. Now, they will have done the line share of the work because they've marked up their own work.
0: Yes. So, <laughs>
1: so, so that saves so, you a little
0: bit of time, too. <laughs> A lot lot of time time because because
1: essentially, essentially, you know, rather than trying to reverse engineer what what in the world they've done, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and trying to decipher it, you know, because they had to articulate their thought process in the first step and because of the markup in the second step, you know, you can just skim it and you have an immediate good impression of whether the student is on target or not. Yeah, so so, so I think there are so, so by building in this what, what psychologists call metacognitive part mm-hmm. reflection, um, I, I I think it actually is possible to to simplify our life as external evaluators.
0: Yeah, and I think you're really kind of teaching the students that this this isn't a banking model, that I'm not here to hand you information that you now own. Instead, they are taking the steps to learn it themselves. I mean, you're there as a guide and you've provided the structure for everything, but really they're taking ownership of the learning that way.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I, and I think you know that, that's how learning really works. I mean, if I analyze my own learning since I graduated, that's how it works, right? I mean, we have to be our own judges of our own learning. And we have to have that ability. And I think we graduate many, many students from our universities who don't have that ability and therefore, you know, will not be able to grow on their own after graduating, which is a huge missed opportunity.
0: So let's talk about your learning. I mean, you've been at this for a long time, but I mean, I'm sure you're still learning as you go. And you know, what a, what a year and a half we've been through. So I can, I can only imagine this has thrown you some curve balls, the modality shifts that we've had as a result of the pandemic. What, if, what have you learned about learner engagement?
1: Oh, so much. You know, I, I, one of the things that the pandemic made me realize, and since you brought that up, is that um, so much of our classroom practices, are dictated by the classroom environment, the walls that are there, right? I mean, most of education is synchronous simply because we do it in a classroom, right? We do it in a classroom, which means the classroom needs to be available at a given time, and then the students and the instructor need to all come there at the same time. Uh, And then on top of that, it's not just synchronous, it's also at the pace of the instructor, it's the instructor who imposes a pace on the learner. Whereas I think we all, if we think about it, we all would agree the best way to learn is whenever the learner is most predisposed to learn, that is asynchronously, and not at the pace of the instructor, but whatever the pace the, 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 the student has. So the pandemic offered an opportunity to literally break down the walls of the classroom and, and, and made me sort of realize that a lot of the activities that I used to do completely synchronously can much better be done asynchronously. So, so, so I went through all of the activities that we would do in the classroom, I made a list, and I asked myself, does this have to be synchronous? Could this be done asynchronously? And I noticed that just about everything we do in the classroom could one way or another, especially now through technology, be done asynchronously. And, and there's no really good reason that we do it could be done asynchronously. I mean, I don't know if I said asynchronous or synchronous. And, and there's no real good reason anymore that we do it synchronously. And, and so I ended up moving a lot of things from the synchronous to the asynchronous bin and that way I could personalize any synchronous time much more. Right? Because, I, in fact, there was so much, so, f- so fewer synchronous activities that I could, first of all, distribute them more in time and also distribute myself more in time to interact more with the students. In fact, I was so excited by the results that we had last year that I have started to sort of translate that back. I mean, the, you know, the administration at Harvard said, you are going to be teaching in the classroom. I just plugged my ears and decided to do whatever was, I thought was best for my students. So I, I gave my students a choice. You can come to the classroom and sit around the table with a mask and, and, and I'll join your team there. Or you can do it on Zoom. In the beginning of the term, 90% of the students were in the classroom because they were all yearning to be back in the classroom. Then it dropped to you know, 70% and then 50% and then 40%. Now it's the weather was really nice this week, so it went back up to, uh, to 60%. But all of a sudden students are discovering, wow, it's so much better if we do it, you know, when, when it works for us. And it doesn't make much difference whether I physically sit at their table or we, 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 we do it on Zoom. And so many students are discovering that the non-project part, the project there, you have to get together because you, you're building things. But for the, for the non-project part, for the for the other activities, it's, it's just, you know, doesn't make much difference. And you have much more flexibility online than you have in the physical classroom.
0: And do you, do you notice any difference in how students participate at a distance? I had a faculty member tell me that um, his one of his students said, "She participates so much more now because she's at home and she's comfortable. She always felt a little anxious in the classroom about speaking up, but she feels yeah. comfortable."
1: Absolutely, I think I think it's I think you know, students comfort level and students comfort level speaking up has definitely uh, been changed a lot. And also, there's another thing. You know, when I'm sitting with students at the table, I can see the student who is sitting across from me face to face. But the ones who are sitting left and right, I see them, you know, from from the side. And they don't come with this handy little name card that Zoom has at the bottom, right? Whereas on Zoom, you're all face to face. You see You see each other face to face. And 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 I'm constantly reminded of their of their name. So within a few weeks, even though I have 120 students in my class, I, I know them by name. Um, so so the thing that we do in the classroom is that we make name labels for all of the students. So a big name label, which they put on the table in front of them. So at least I have that. Um, but now that we are in the six weeks of class, many students get lazy. They don't even take their name cards out of the envelope that has the name labels on their table. <laughs> so it's starting to water down already a little bit. And I noticed also because of the mask, which hopefully will go away at some point, it's much harder to connect faces. Uh, I already I have often difficulty connecting for a large number of people the name to a face. With a mask, it becomes even harder.
0: Yes, yep, yeah. Yeah. So I have uh, three uh, quick questions that I'll uh, ask all of our guests um, and just quick responses here. So first, what is a major barrier to learning engagement that you have experienced?
1: I would say that the the biggest barrier is really that we're we're creatures of habit and and change. Any change is just very, very difficult and even more so because of the lack of external accountability in education, I think. And uh, you you remarked earlier, why is it that, you know, in the 21st century, we're still sort of maintaining, I'm paraphrasing what you said, traditions that dated back to, you know, centuries. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons. It's, you know, it's like moving a mountain, one little stone at a time we just have to persist and 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 the other thing is we have to go slowly probably if we go too fast people will dig in their heels and there'll there'll be a huge backlash so i think it's probably healthy that we're slowly moving the system in the right direction
0: yeah and i think it's more effective change anyways when you can try just one thing at a time rather than trying to completely revamp everything at once so um my next question is about the future then so what should we start thinking about or exploring in our discussions on learner engagement that isn't fully being addressed yet
1: first of all I think there's a lot that's not fully been addressed I mean if we look at my own evolution as a as an educator I started as a lecturer then I was changing the approach to teaching then later I started to change the approach to assessment and most recently as we discussed, I started to think about the learning environment. And I think most of our formal education is tied to a campus or a school or a building or a classroom. And I really think that the pandemic has opened up my eyes to the possibility of an education that is A, very different from MOOCs, but also very, very different from, uh, from, from the traditional classroom-based education. Something that is extremely flexible and adaptable, and, and that is not massive and online, <clears throat> but could certainly have a significant component that is online. <clears throat> and as we've seen, you know, there are some successful institutions that way. Minerva University at the, at the high end. Uh, Western Governors uh, University uh, in, in another part of the educational spectrum, uh, both of whom are doing extremely well and uh, and and show that that you don't need the traditional classroom. So I think thinking about learning environment and the role of a physical campus, I think is a discussion that we need to consider very seriously as we think about education for the future.
0: Mm. And that really opens up the possibility of serving more in different kinds of learners too, which is absolutely exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: and, okay. and and not just one particular, I mean different kinds, all the way from, you know, the the, 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 the most selective education to 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 maybe even vocational
0: yeah. uh, education. Yeah. Yeah. Um so as we wrap up my final question is what is the one thing you want people to remember from this conversation about learner engagement?
1: Well, I think, you know, we should not forget that living is learning and learning is not an engagement into learning is not confined to any to formal education. It starts at birth, you know. It ends at uh, at the end of our lives and and I think what is really important is that we create an environment where the learner takes ownership of their learning and 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 that learning should never be a suffering it it should be fun it should be motivated intrinsically by the learner rather than extrinsically by the educator or by the exam
0: yeah yeah and you know what one of the things i really ad- admire about your work is that not only do you say that the student should be in control of the learning, but you've also given up some control and that's really hard for instructors to do.
1: (laughs) I give up all control, I'm perfectly (laughs) fine with that.
0: Uh, Yeah, well, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I think we've really learned a lot about uh, learner engagement and the things that you've done and the lessons that you've learned over your years.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was fun.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Learner Engagement Activated is produced by the Learner Engagement Division of the Association for Educational Communications and Technology. This episode was hosted by Ian Fency with sound editing and production by Ian Fency. The music is from Purple Planet. Visit the Learner Engagement Division online at www.learnerengagement.org and find out more about the Association for Educational Communications and Technology at aect.org.